Chapter 1 of Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Barber. Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa by Jules Verne. Translated by Ellen E. Frewer. Chapter 1. On the Banks of the Orange River On the 27th of January, 1854, two men lay stretched at the foot of an immense weeping willow, chatting, and at the same time watching most attentively the waters of the Orange River. This river, the Gruerter of the Dutch and the Gharip of the Hottentots, may well vie with the other three great arteries of Africa, the Nile, the Niger and the Zambezi. Like those, it has its periodical risings, its rapids and cataracts. Travellers, whose names are known over part of its course, Thompson, Alexander and Birchall, have each in their turn praised the clearness of its waters and the beauty of its shores. At this point, the river, as it approached the Duke of York Mountains, offered a magnificent spectacle to the view. Insurmountable rocks, imposing masses of stone, and trunks of trees that had become mineralized by the action of the weather, deep caverns, impenetrable forests, not yet disturbed by the settler's axe, all these, shut in by a background formed by the mountains of the Kharib, made up a scene, matchless in its magnificence. There, too, the waters of the river, on account of the extreme narrowness of their bed, and the sudden falling away of the soil, rushed down from a height of 400 feet. Above the fall, there were only surging sheets of water, broken here and there by points of rock wreathed with green boughs. Below, there was only a dark whirlpool of tumultuous waters, crowned with a thick cloud of damp vapour, and striped with all the colours of the rainbow. From this gulf, there arose a deafening roar, increased and varied by the echoes of the valley. Of these two men, who had evidently been brought into this part of South Africa by the chances of an exploration, one lent only a vague attention to the beauties of nature that were open to his view. This indifferent traveller was a hunting bushman, a fine type of that brave, bright-eyed, rapidly gesticulating race of men who led a wandering life in the woods. Bushman, a word derived from the Dutch Boschesman, is literally a man of the bushes, and is applied to the wandering tribes that scour the country in the northwest of Cape Colony. Not a family of these bushmen is sedentary. They pass their lives in roaming over the region lying between the Orange River and the mountains of the east, in pillaging farms and in destroying the crops of the overbearing colonists, by whom they have been driven back towards the interior of the country, where more rocks than plants abound. This bushman, a man of about 40 years of age, was very tall and evidently possessed great muscular strength, for even when at rest his body presented the attitude of action. The clearness, ease and freedom of his movements stamped him as an energetic character, a man cast in the same mould as the celebrated Leatherstocking, the hero of the Canadian prairies, though perhaps possessing less calmness than Cooper's favourite hunter as could be seen by the transient deepening of colour in his face whenever he was animated by an unusual emotion. The bushman was no longer a savage like the rest of his race, the ancient Lakwas, for, born of an English father, 
and a Hottentot mother, the half-breed, through his association with strangers, had gained more than he had lost, and spoke the paternal tongue fluently. His costume, half Hottentot, half European, consisted of a red flannel shirt, a loose coat, and breeches of antelope hide, and leggings made of the skin of a wild cat. From his neck hung a little bag containing a knife, a pipe, and some tobacco. He wore on his head a kind of skull cap of sheepskin. A belt made from the thick thong of some wild animal encircled his waist, and on his naked wrists were rings of ivory wrought with remarkable skill. From his shoulders flowed a cross, a kind of hanging mantle cut out of a tiger's skin and falling as low as the knees. A dog of native breed was sleeping near him while he himself was smoking a bone pipe in quick puffs giving unequivocal signs of impatience. Come, let us be calm, Makuam, said his interlocutor. You are truly the most impatient of mortals whenever you are not hunting. But do understand, my worthy companion, that we can't change what is. Those whom we are expecting will come sooner or later, tomorrow, if not today. The bushman's companion was a young man from twenty-five to twenty-six years of age, and quite a contrast to him. His calm temperament was shown in every action, and it could be decided without a moment's hesitation that he was an Englishman. His much-too-homely costume proved him to be unaccustomed to travelling. He gave one the idea of a clerk who had wandered into a savage country, and one looked involuntarily to see if he carried a pen behind his ear, like a cashier, clerk, accountant, or some other variety of the great family of the bureaucracy. In truth, this young man was not a traveller, but a distinguished savant. William Emery, an astronomer attached to the observatory at the Cape, a useful establishment which has for a long time rendered true services to science. The scholar, rather out of his element, perhaps in this uninhabited region of South Africa, several hundred miles from Cape Town, could hardly manage to curb the impatience of his companion. Mr. Emery, replied the hunter in good English, here we have been for eight days at the place appointed on the orange, the cataract of Morgada. It is indeed a long time since it has befallen a member of my family to remain eight days in one place. You forget that we are rovers, and that our feet burn at lingering here. My friend Makuam, replied the astronomer, those we are waiting for are coming from England, and surely we can allow them eight days of grace. We must take into account the length of the passage and the hindrances which a steam vessel must meet with in ascending the orange, and, in short, the thousand difficulties belonging to such an undertaking. We have been told to make every preparation for a journey of exploration in South Africa, and that being done, to come here to the falls of Morgada and wait for my colleague, Colonel Everest of the Cambridge Observatory. Well, here are the falls of Morgada. We are at the place appointed, and we are waiting. What more do you want, my worthy bushman? The hunter doubtless did want more, for his fingers played feverishly with the lock of his rifle, an excellent manton, a weapon of precision with conical shot, and which could bring down a wild cat or an antelope at a distance of eight or nine hundred yards. Thus it may be seen that the bushman had put aside the quiver of aloes and the poisoned darts of his fellow countrymen, for the use of European weapons. But you are not mistaken, Mr. Emery, replied Makuam. 
Is it really at the falls of Morgada, and towards the end of this month of January, that they have appointed to meet you? Yes, my friend, quietly answered William Emery, and here is the letter from Mr. Airy, the director of the Greenwich Observatory, which will show you that I am not mistaken. The bushman took the letter that his companion gave him. He turned it over and over, like a man not very familiar with the mysteries of penmanship. Then, giving it back to William Emery, he said, Tell me again what the blotted piece of paper says. The astronomer, endowed with a patience proof against everything, began again, for the twentieth time, the story he had so often told his friend the hunter. At the end of the foregoing year, William Emery had received a letter telling him of the approaching arrival of Colonel Everest and an international scientific commission in Southern Africa. What the plans of the commission were, and why it came to the extremity of the continent of Africa, Emery could not say, Mr. Airy's letter being silent on that point. But following the instructions that he had received, he hastened to Lataku, one of the most northern stations in the Hottentot country, to prepare wagons, provisions, and in short, everything that could be wanted for the victualling of a Bushesman caravan. Then, as he knew the reputation of the native hunter, Makuam, who had accompanied Anderson in his hunting expeditions in Western Africa, and the intrepid David Livingston on his first journey of exploration to Lake Ngami and the falls of the Zambezi, he offered him the command of this same caravan. This done, it was arranged that the bushman, who knew the country perfectly, should lead William Emery along the banks of the Orange to the Morgada Falls, the place appointed for the scientific commission to join them. This commission was to take its passage in the British frigate Augusta to reach the mouth of the Orange on the western coast of Africa as high as Cape Volters and to ascend the river as far as the cataracts. William Emery and McQuim had therefore brought a wagon which they had left at the bottom of the valley to carry the strangers and their baggage to Lataku, unless they preferred getting there by the Orange and its affluence, after they had avoided the falls of Mogeda by a land journey of some miles. This story ended, and at length really impressed on the bushman's mind, he advanced to the edge of the gulf, to whose bottom the foaming river threw itself with a crash. The astronomer followed, for there a projecting point commanded a view of the river below the cataract for a distance of several miles. For some minutes, Makwim and his companion gazed attentively at the part of the river where it resumed its tranquillity about a quarter of a mile below them, but not an object, either boat or pirogue, disturbed its course. It was then three o'clock. The month of January here corresponds to the July of northern countries, and the sun almost vertical in latitude 29 degrees, heated the atmosphere till the thermometer stood at 105 degrees Fahrenheit, in the shade. If it had not been for the westerly breeze, which moderated the heat a little, the temperature would have been unbearable for any but a bushman. Still, the young astronomer, with his cool temperament, all bone and all nerves, did not feel it too much. The thick foliage of the trees which overhung the abyss protected him, from the direct attacks of the sun's rays. Not a bird enlivened the solitude during these hot hours of the day. Not an animal left the cool shade of the bushes to trust itself along the glades. Not a sound would have been heard in this deserted region, 
even if the cataract had not filled the whole air with its roar. After gazing for ten minutes, McQuirm turned to William Emery, stamping impatiently with his large foot. His penetrating eyes had discovered nothing. Supposing your people don't come, he asked the astronomer. They'll come, my brave hunter, answered William Emery. They are men of their word, and punctual like all astronomers. Besides, what fault do you find with them? The letter says that they are to arrive at the end of January. This is the 27th, and these gentlemen have still a right to four more days before they need to reach the Morgada Falls. And supposing they have not come at the end of those four days? asked the bushman. Well, then, Master Hunter, there will be a chance for us to show our patience, for we will wait for them until I have certain proof that they are not coming at all. By our God, core, cried the bushman in a sonorous voice. You are a man who would wait until the Kharib had emptied all its roaring waters into that abyss. No, Hunter, no, replied Emery in his ever-quiet tone. But we must let reason govern our actions. And what does reason tell us? This, that if Colonel Everest and his companions, wearied with a tiresome journey, in want perhaps, and lost in this lonely country, were not to find us at the place of rendezvous, we should be to blame in every way. If anything went wrong, the responsibility would rest on us. We ought therefore to stay at our post as long as it is our duty to do so. And besides, we want for nothing here. Our wagon is waiting for us at the bottom of the valley and gives us shelter at night. We have plenty of provisions. Nature here is magnificent and worthy of our admiration. And it is quite a new pleasure to me to spend a few days in these splendid forests on the banks of this matchless river. As for you, Mukwam, what can you want more? Game, both hairy and feathered, abounds in the forests and your rifle keeps us supplied with venison. Hunt, my brave hunter. Kill time by killing deer and buffaloes. Go, my good bushman. I'll watch for the loiterers meanwhile, and your feet, at any rate, will run no risk of taking root. The hunter thought the astronomer's advice was good, and decided that he would go for a few hours and beat the neighboring bushes and brushwood. Lions, hyenas, and leopards would not disturb such a nimrod as he so well accustomed to the African forests. He whistled to his dog, Top, an animal of the hyena breed from the desert of the Kalahari, and a descendant of that race of which the Balabas formerly made pointers. The intelligent creature, as impatient seemingly as his master, bounded up and showed by his joyous barking how much he was gratified at the bushman's intention. Soon, both man and dog disappeared among the thick masses of wood, which crowned the background of the cataract. William Emery, now alone, again stretched himself at the foot of the willow, and while he was waiting for the heat to send him to sleep, began to think over his actual position. Here he was, far away from any inhabited spot on the banks of the Orange River, a river as yet but little explored. He was waiting for Europeans, fellow countrymen, who had left their homes to run the risks of a distant expedition. But what was the expedition for? What scientific problem could it want to solve in the deserts of South Africa? What observation could it be trying to take in latitude 30 degrees south? That was just what Mr. Airy, the director of the Greenwich Observatory, did not tell in his letter. As for Emery himself, 
they asked for his cooperation as for that of a scientific man who was familiar with the climate of those southern latitudes, and as he was openly engaged in scientific labours, he was quite at the disposal of his colleagues in the United Kingdom. As the young astronomer lay musing over all these things and asking himself a thousand questions which he could not answer, his eyelids became heavy, and at length he slept soundly. When he awoke, the sun was already hidden behind the western hills, whose picturesque outline stood out sharply against the bright horizon. Some gnawings of hunger told him that supper time was near. It was, in fact, six o'clock, and just the hour for returning to the wagon at the bottom of the valley. At that very moment a report resounded from a grove of arborescent heaths from twelve to fifteen feet high, which was growing along the slope of the hills on the right. Almost immediately the bushman and Top made their appearance at the edge of the wood, the former dragging behind him the animal that he had just shot. "'Come, come, Master Purveyor,' cried Emery. "'What have you got for supper?' "'A springbok, Mr. William,' replied the hunter, throwing down an animal with horns curved like a lyre. It was a kind of antelope, more generally known by the name of leaping buck, and which is to be met with in every part of South Africa. It is a charming animal, with its cinnamon-coloured back and its croup, covered with tufts of silky hair of a dazzling whiteness, whilst its underpart is in shades of chestnut brown, its flesh always excellent eating, was on this occasion to form the evening repast. The hunter and the astronomer, lifting the beast by means of a pole placed across their shoulders, now left the head of the cataract, and in half an hour reached their encampment in a narrow gorge of the valley, where the wagon, guarded by two Boschesman drivers, was waiting for them. End of chapter 1. Recording by Ryan Barber.